All right, praises be to our loving Father that we are able to gather once again to study his words and his commands. So today we're going to study Revelation 18. Last week, we talked about Revelation 17, which introduced to us Great Babylon. And we gave several arguments that Great Babylon referred to Jerusalem in the end times. And so we will continue with that theme because in Revelation 18, we discover what is in store for Babylon, which is its demise or its fall, the fall of Babylon. So let's begin our studies in the book of Revelation 18 in the verses 1. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And so Revelation 18 begins by introducing another angel to make distinct this angel from the seven who carried the seven bowls of wrath. So this one is different because this angel is going to announce something significant. And this angel has great authority. And because of his glory, he illuminated the earth when he appeared to make this announcement. What is the announcement by this angel that was seen? Let's read the book of Revelation 18 and the verses 2. And he cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a, pray, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. So what was this uh, major announcement from this angel who was filled with glory, it illuminated the earth. Bible says, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. And so it was framed with this glorious angel making an announcement with a loud voice. In other words, we're reaching the point where we find the end of the age or the end of the world. And this end begins with the Babylon the Great having fallen. So Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons. Now, what is the what is Babylon the Great? What does that refer to? We know in our previous study, it doesn't refer to a woman. It refers to something else. In fact, Revelation 17, 18 identifies the woman called Great Babylon. In uh, Revelation 17, 18, this is what we read. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Often in Revelation, it mentions the great city. And this great city is described as a city that will reign over the kings of the earth. In other words, it will have authority over the nations of the world. In our last Bible study, we talked about the Antichrist because he will make Jerusalem his headquarters. And we know the Antichrist will be given authority over the nations for 3.5 years. And so he will make Jerusalem as his headquarters. It will be called a great city and it will reign over the kings or the leaders of the earth. To what else is the great city likened to? Revelation 11 verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so when we look at the clues concerning the identity of the great city here, we have one that's pretty easy to understand because everyone knows where the Lord was crucified. 
it is Jerusalem. Jerusalem, spiritually, is also called Sodom and Egypt. It is the great city, which will also be called Great Babylon. And so Jerusalem, in the end times, will be called Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. Now, when we look at Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon, they are used by the book of Revelation to describe Jerusalem because of the spiritual condition of Jerusalem during the end times, and also because of the pattern by which Jerusalem will be destroyed when the appropriate time comes. So Jer Jerusalem in the end times is called Sodom, Egypt, and Babylon. And today we'll look at why it is referred to as Babylon. And the Bible says Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now, why is Babylon the great fallen? Why does the angel announce its demise? What has become of Jerusalem? What has become of Babylon? Let's read Revelation 18 2 again. Bible says that Babylon the great is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. What does that mean? Well, it means Jerusalem has been chosen to be the headquarters of demons and foul spirits. If you still remember, Pergamos in the Holy Scriptures in the book of Revelation was identified as the place where the throne of Satan was set. Because from time to time, Satan will select a jurisdiction and he will act as the influencing power behind the scenes of the affairs taking place in that jurisdiction. This is why Satan is also called King of Tyre, King of Babylon, when he set up his throne there. He also set up his throne in Pergamos. And now the Bible's telling us Satan seems to be setting up his headquarters, his um, throne there in Babylon the Great or Jerusalem. And there's a reason why. It's because he wants to use his main instrument, the Antichrist, to imitate the true Christ or the true Mashiach. And what better way to imitate the true Mashiach than to use the place where supposedly he's going to reign in his millennial kingdom. And so this is the plan of the devil, because after all, he's confined to the earth. He's no longer allowed to go to heaven. So his wrath is focused upon the earth. He's going to deceive the whole earth, and he will make as his headquarters, of course, Jerusalem, because he wants to go against the true Mashiach. And what better way to go against the true Mashiach than to raise a man and cause people to believe that he is the true Mashiach who rules in Jerusalem. And so we have demons, foul spirit, and we have an unclean and hated bird. That's interesting because the unclean and hated bird seems to symbolize the work of Satan himself. In the book of Mark, 4, 3 to 4, in the parable of our king Yahusha, Yahusha says, listen, behold, a, sow a sower went out to sow. And it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and birds of the air came and devoured it. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their 
hearts. So our King Yahusha gave a parable. This parable is about the word of Elohim. It's likened to a seed. There are people who receive the word, but they do not bear fruit. And one reason why is because as they receive the word, what happens? Birds come in and devour the seed. Now, who is the bird? Bible says it is Satan who does the work of taking away the word of Elohim. And so when the Bible tells us about the unclean birds that occupies Babylon, that occupies Jerusalem, it is referring to the wake of Satan in taking away the word of Elohim. And so that place is going to be covered with darkness. It's going to bring deception upon the whole world. This is why Babylon, the Bible says, is fallen. Babylon will fall. It is imminent and it's going to happen rapidly. It's going to happen quickly. Now for Babylon to fall, of course, it had to rise first. It's going to bring a lot of influence all over the world. So how did Babylon rise in the first place? Let's read Revelation 18 and the verses 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Here the Bible tells us about her fornication. And when it says her fornication, it's speaking of the woman, great Babylon, which is Jerusalem. And so the Bible says there's others who join Jerusalem in this fornication. Who are they? The kings of the earth, the leaders of nations. Now, what does it mean that this woman, this harlot, which is why she's called the harlot because of the fornication, what does it mean that they will, she, she will commit fornication? Well, we know throughout the Holy Bible, Yahuwah accuses Jerusalem repeatedly in Hosea, in Jeremiah, and elsewhere in Scripture, and Yahuwah accuses Jerusalem of infidelity, fornication, and adultery. And always, it refers to some type of idolatry. And so what the fornication in Revelation represents is idolatry. It's when people turn away from Yahuwah and devote themselves into worshiping false gods. And so Jerusalem gets started with false worship. She gets drunk with false worship. And then she seduces the other nations to join in false worship. How will she do that? Well, first, she will introduce the merchants. And so at first, there will be kings, political people, people who have authority and influence. And they will be in a relationship with this woman because they want to get rich because of her abundance of her luxury. So initially, the kings and the powerful people, the merchants of the earth, at first, their initial desire is simply because they want to profit from, the, from great Babylon. Eventually, however, they also commit fornication. In other words, they also commit idolatry. Why is that? What will they see which will cause them to also commit fornication or 
idolatry. Well, in Revelation 13, 3 and 8, we know in our past studies, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast, and all who, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written, the book of life of the, of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So initially, their motivation, their intent in joining this organization that, were, that Jerusalem is involved with, or the great Babylon is involved with, is financial for self-profit because they want the riches and to live in abundance of luxury, but eventually they would marvel at the beast. And so eventually they would actually join in the fornication, join in the idolatry together with Jerusalem. They too will now marvel at the beast. They too will now worship the beast. And what better way to anger Yahuwah than to worship the beast and to worship the one who empowers the beast. And so Yahuwah says, okay, you're going to fall. Time will come and they will fall. And so what does Yahuwah um, give as a warning? Revelation 18 and the verses four, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. And so the Bible tells us that during this time, it's very important that people do not have any associations with the Antichrist, do not receive her mark, do not receive the image of the Antichrist, do not engage in worship of the Antichrist. It, that's what it means to come out of her, do not have any associations with her. Bible says come out of her, because if not, then you will share in her sins and you will receive her plagues. Now, why has Yahuwah decided that uh, Babylon would fall and how would it fall? Revelation 18 and verses 5, for her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. What caused the fall of Babylon? I think it's pretty obvious. What is it that causes the fall of Babylon? Simple. It is sin. I think we need to gain an understanding of just how destructive sin is. Because nowadays many people dismiss sin. When people talk about sin, they kind of smirk. They don't take it seriously. They don't identify sin today. It's outside the vocabulary of many people nowadays. Many people do not consider their choices sinful, even if it is obviously a sin according to the word of God. And so the word sin is out of the vocabulary of many people today. People commit sin and they don't care if they commit sin, right? The Bible says it is because of sin that Babylon is going to fall. And so we need to remember that pattern. If we don't want to fall, we need to remove sin from our life. And why must we remove sin from our life? What will sin produce? How does sin bring destruction upon Babylon? Let's read Revelation 18 verse 6. Render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. What does the Bible warn us about sin? Bible says because of Babylon's sin, because of her iniquities, she's going to suffer the consequences of sin. What is that? 
she has to repay double according to her works. This principle of paying double according to one's sin, something that we find in scripture. For example, in Isaiah 40 in the verses two, speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from Yahuwah's hand double for all her sins. And so as part of a just restitution for sin, Bible calls it double, receiving double or paying double for one's sin. This is the Bible's way. It's like an idiom for telling us they receive their just consequences or just punishment for the sin that people commit. And so we need to understand that principle. Yes, sin can be forgiven, right? Jerusalem's sin has been forgiven in the book of Isaiah 40 verse 2. However, it doesn't mean there was no consequence. There was no punishment. You see, there's punishment, there's consequence for sin. And so when we keep building up and building up the sin in our life, we have to face the consequences of sin. And in the future, the Bible says in Jeremiah 16, 18, because this event hasn't taken place yet, this is what it says. And first, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. This is why when the Bible mentions the abomination of desolation, it refers to idolatry. And what greater abomination is there when someone will claim the worship for himself instead of giving it to Yahuwah. So we can see that sin, something that we need to be serious about, serious in removing from our life, because sin, the consequences of sin, is what will bring about the fall of Babylon. However, even though we preach about sin and we warn people about sin, many people reject sin because for many people, well, what Babylon has to offer very attractive. Do you know what Babylon has to offer? Why do so many dismiss the consequence of sin? Why do many people today, if you notice, many people reject the Bible, many people reject the scriptures, many people reject theology or religion, and what they want is a different kind of religion that is similar to the philosophy of humanism, right? They want to be autonomous from Yahuwah. They don't want Yahuwah to interfere with their life. They want to make their own choices. It's about them. It's called the, uh, the culture of I, right? It's all about me. Whatever feels good to me, that's what I'll do. And so there's a complete disregard for the feelings of other people. If it means good, if it's what I want, even if, even if it means destroying my family, destroying my spouse, even if it means having harming someone else in the process of pleasing me, people like that. And there's that is what's what drives many people and many civilizations today. And this is what Revelation actually reveals in Revelation 18, 7 to 8. This one reason why Babylon will be so attractive to so many people is what it says here in 7 to 8. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously in the same measure give her torment and sorrow for she says in her heart i sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow therefore her plagues will come in one day 
death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is Yahuwah God who judges her. And so what is the reason that Babylon offers such an attractive option to so many people today? This is why the Antichrist, when he will present his agenda, many people will applaud him. Many people will like what he has to say. Reason why is because it promotes glorifying self. And it promotes living luxuriously. Living for self. Living for exalting oneself. And nowadays, this is what people want. In Revelation 18, 7 to 8, when the Apostle John is writing this book, it is also connected to Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah, in his prophecies, he spoke about Babylon in the future. Jeremiah knew about the rise of a Babylon in the future. And he also wrote about its characteristic and its downfall. You notice in Revelation 18, 7 down to 8, Babylon says, or she says to herself, I sit as queen and I'm no widow. Right? She has confidence in herself. And this is actually the fulfillment of Isaiah 47, 8 down to 10. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they worked together, and, and many of them, prof, both of them prophesied many, many end-time scenarios involving Babylon in Isaiah 47, 8 down to 10. This is what it says. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things, two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments, for you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you, and you have said in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. And so what is the attraction of Babylon? It is this idea that you can be God yourself. If you notice Isaiah 47, 7 down, 8 down, down to 10, Apostle, uh, prophet Isaiah is speaking about Babylon. You notice the phraseology? how it speaks of a widow or it speaks of a, a, a woman who says he's not a widow and that she will not suffer the loss of children, that she's confident in her, in her security. And then the Bible says this, this woman is going to suffer loss in one day, right? Isn't that what Revelation is talking about? So Revelation 18 is actually talking about Isaiah 47, 8 to 10. It's going to be fulfilled too. Isaiah, when he wrote this, it wasn't going to be fulfilled yet. At the latter time, and it's being it's going to be fulfilled very, very soon in our lifetime, perhaps. And so Isaiah is speaking about what is attractive about Great Babylon. What is that? You can be your own God. Isn't this the message of New Agers? You look at the last sentence, and you have said, In your heart, I am. Now, who was the one who said I am? Was that was it not Yahuwah? Who says I am? There's going to be this idea nowadays. And they're going to propagate this all over the world. You know, you don't have to worry about someone 
looking at you and condemning you. There's no such thing as a God. You yourself are gods. This is why they don't believe that there is this God called Yahuwah. They believe them themselves are gods. And so what will they do to cater to their selfishness? The Bible says that they are given to pleasures. They think they dwell securely. They say, look at sentence number three, I am, and there's no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I have, shall I know the loss of children. Can you imagine the pride? Do you see the pride of these individuals? And that's the philosophy adopted by many people today, right? They say, I am, there's no one else besides me. In other words, no one can tell me what to do. I do whatever I want to do for myself. I don't have to be accountable to anyone. This is why they say, I am, there's no one else besides me. So instead of being accountable to the one who created them, they say, no, I am accountable only to me. And so they think that they can be the boss of their own life and they will, what they want is to dwell in pleasures and to dwell in sec uh, securely. But the Bible says it's going to come to an end. This is why in Revelation 18, verse 8, this is what Yahuwah decides to do. Therefore, her plagues will come in one day, just like what it says in the book of Isaiah. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is Yahuwah God who judges her. And so Yahuwah will judge Great Babylon, even though she feels she's invincible. I am no widow because she's relying on the help of her false messiah, the Antichrist. I am invincible. No one can harm me. But she will be judged by Yahuwah. And what shall become of her judgment? How will it carry out? 9 to 10, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing in a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And so, yes, there will be a time when great Babylon will flourish through the leadership of Satan and the Antichrist, the Anti-Mashiach, or the Beast. They will rule the world for some time. However, their judgment will come, and it will come swiftly. In one day, in fact, here it says, for in one hour, your judgment has come. And we know the judgment of the Beast and the Antichrist, it's going to happen in a series of in a, a series of punishments and judgments called the seven bowls of wrath. Look at uh, bowl number seven, unprecedented earthquake and hailstones. This is why it makes sense in Revelation where it says her judgment happens in one hour because when you look at the seventh bowl in Revelation 16, 17, and 21, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. 
Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before Elohim to give her the cup of the wine of the fiercest of his wrath. Then every island flew away and the mounts were not found and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed Elohim because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. So it's not surprising that the great Babylon would be decimated in just an hour because of this great earthquake. This earthquake and its destructive force is such that nothing in the past can even equate remotely with how powerful this earthquake is going to be. And add to that the hailstones, can a hundred pounds of hail falling upon individuals. And it because of the destructive nature of this bowl of wrath, it's going to destroy the nations of the world and it will destroy Great Babylon into three parts. And so we will see the smoke of her torment ascend and she will be decimated and punished by Yahuwah. And when this is being done, what would happen to the influence of great Babylon? Revelation 18 verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. In other words, the influence of great Babylon it's only for an appointed time. The influence of the Antichrist is only for an appointed time. As a matter of fact, it mentions 42 months and then it's gone. Then the judgment will come. What will bring judgment to them? They committed sin. Their sin against Yahuwah reached to the heavens. And because of this, they did not even bother to repent. When Yahuwah sent the bowls of wrath, when Yahuwah sent punishments and plagues, instead of repenting, what did they do? They cursed and blasphemed Yahuwah even more. And so they're going to be judged, and great will be their judgment. Now we're speaking here about the merchants. We're speaking here about great Babylon. Why are we sure it is Jerusalem? So let's pose this question. What city, what really is the city? That is, that is referred to in these passages as Great Babylon. We made an argument, right, in Revelation 17 for why it is Jerusalem. Now, many people take exception to that. They say, we don't agree. We believe it is Babylon, literally Babylon, somewhere in Iraq. There are those who say, no, it is Rome. There are those who say, no, it is Mecca. Well, actually, when you look at all the clues and put them together, it really points to Jerusalem. And we're going to establish another argument for that. And so we ask the question, what city is referred to in these passages as Great Babylon? Well, we have a great clue. And I want you to join us, to join me in examining these clues, because they're going to be very, very thought-provoking, and they're going to open our eyes, okay? We mentioned the merchants, right? The merchants. Here, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her for no one buys her merchandise anymore. And so they have their influence through the merchandise, right? So what are they going to be selling? What are the What's the merchandise? Well, it turns out the list of merchandise reveals very clearly the city referred to as Great Babylon in the end times. So let's go ahead and read what the merchandise includes. 
Allow me to read the book of Revelation 18, 12 to 13. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. So that's the merchandise. Obviously, when the Apostle John wrote this list of merchandise, it's not referring to what got, what made Babylon the Great financially rich. This is describing something else, which is the nature of prophecy. At one point, it speaks about you know, the physical things, and then it shifts. And then the, the list of things are going to include points to a different reality. This is what we have here. It's communicating something to us. Remember, when there are details in the Bible, it's there for a reason, right? And so when we examine the list of merchandise identified with Great Babylon, we will have a clear path to making a conclusion about who or the identity of Great Babylon. Look at the merchandise. I want you to to take some time and look it over. And what conclusion can you make about the merchandise? What does it associate? What is it associated with? Well, let's go look at it piece by piece, every single one, because every single one has a purpose. Every single one is there for a reason, and it's to communicate to us the identity of Great Babylon, why it's going to rise. Here it is. Let's look first at gold, silver, and precious stones. And so what we want to do is to look at scripture and let scripture interpret scripture. And so we ask ourselves, well, where else do we find in scripture the phrase gold, silver, and precious stones? It turns out it's found in only three places in scripture. In 2 Chronicles 32, 27, in Daniel 11, 37, 38, and Chronicles 29, and the verses too. So what's the purpose of gold, silver, and precious stones? What is that related to? 2 Chronicles 32, 27, Hezekiah had great riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver, for gold, for precious stones, for spices, for shields, and for all kinds of desirable items. And so we know silver and gold and precious stones is associated with Jerusalem, with Israel, because Hezekiah, of course, belongs to Yisharah, right? What else? It turns out in Daniel 11, 37, 38, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all, but in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And so what we find in Daniel 11 in our previous study concerning little horn, past and future, we know this little horn had a fulfillment in the immediate future, and it's going to have a final more complete fulfillment in the person ministry of the anti-Mashiach. And here, when the anti-Mashiach is being described, he's going to use the gold, the silver, and the precious stones to honor himself. I want you to keep that in mind. Now, what was the purpose of gold, silver, and precious stones? Is it to honor someone? Let's read the book of Chronicles 29, verse 2. Now, for the house of my God, I have prepared with all my might gold for things 
to be made of gold, silver for things of silver, and all kinds of precious stones. We know gold and silver and precious stones were used to honor Yahuwah by making a temple for Yahuwah made of gold, silver, and precious stones. However, this Antichrist figure is going to use the house of God, supposedly, not to honor Yahuwah, but to honor himself. So, so far what we have, gold, silver, and precious stones, it's referring to the building of the temple. Let's keep reading. In Revelation again, it mentions fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet. We talked about this in the last, in the last lesson. We identified the pattern of blue, purple, and scarlet, and how it's going to be used for the tabernacle curtains, the temple veil, various offerings, worship attire, the girdle, the ephod, the breastplate of the high priest. It's all found in the pattern. It's, it's characterized by this colorful pattern of blue, purple, and scarlet. What's missing is blue. In Revelation 18, the color that's missing is blue. And we've identified blue as the color that represents obedience to the commandments of Yahuwah and the covering that covers the Ark of the Covenant. And so it is, when it's just purple and scarlet, it is referring to the covering of the temple. And so what we find is the, the stones covering, it's for the use of the temple. Now let's look at the citron wood. It's interesting because it's not found anywhere else in the Holy Bible. And so we want to know what that could possibly be. And so when we go to the Blue Letter Bible, it actually records it as thyin, the Greek word thuinos. And when you look at the, uh, how it's used in the Holy Bible, it is referred to as the citrus, an odoriferous North African tree used as incense. And so it's called thyin or citron wood. However, because it's not in the Holy Bible, Right, we might look at other references to see what the origin of this wood is and what its purpose is, according to some scholars. For example, when you look at the Encyclopedia of Biblical Literature, scholars connect thine or citron wood to algum wood, or sometimes called almug wood, which is found in the Old Testament. Now, it probably rings a bell to you when we say algum wood, because algum wood was you, what is found in the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles 9, also the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who brought gold from Ophir, brought algum wood and precious stones. And the king made walkways of the algum wood for the house of Yahuwah. And so the citron wood is also used to the, for the building of the house of Yahuwah. Let's keep going. How about every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble? Again, in Chronicles 29.2, these are the materials, bronze, iron, wood, marble. This is used to build the house of Yahuwah. And so all of these items that represent the merchandise of Great Babylon, it's pointing to the building of the temple of God. But let's keep going. In verse 13, it mentions cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil, and frankincense. Does that sound familiar? 
I think we discussed this in our BQA last, was it last Tuesday, when we discussed all about the oils in the book of Exodus 30, uh, 23 to 25, it mentions uh, also take for yourself quality spices like cinnamon, right? Cane, cassia, olive oil, and you're going to make a holy anointing oil out of it. And what is the purpose of this holy anointing oil? It is so that the tabernacle the, and the Ark of the Covenant can be consecrated. And also Aaron and his sons, those who work as priests, can be consecrated. So the oil is going to be used for temple service. Because for you to have a temple service, you need the priest to be consecrated by this oil. And you also need the utensils and the furniture of the temple to be consecrated by this oil. Well, how about the frankincense? Well, the book of Exodus uh, 30, 34 to 36, and Yahuwah said to Moses, take sweet spices, stacte and onyaka and galbanum and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. And so the frankincense, the incense, well, that was used to produce this incense that is to be used in the testimony, in the Ark of the Testimony, and in the Tabernacle of Meeting. So again, it's connected to temple service. How And when the, these two items, the oil, the incense, which is going to be used for the temple service, what warning did Yahuwah make concerning the making of the oil and the making of the incense? Let's read Exodus 30. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So you weren't allowed to make it. But in the future, because of the merchandise, that Great Babylon is going to be selling, or it will be known for, we know Great Babylon is going to make her own oil. The Bible says don't do that, otherwise she'll be excluded from the people of Elohim. What else? 37, 38, how about the incense? But as for the incense, which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves, according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for Yahuwah, whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. And so the oil and the incense that Yahuwah commanded to be made for the purpose of consecrating the temple, I mean, the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, and the priest, and to be used for temple services, you're not supposed to make that again. But during the end times, great Babylon somehow are going to make it, because what do you think they want to do? They want to reinstitute the temple services. And so we have the cinnamon, the incense, the fragrant oil, and the frankincense. Let's go to the next list. The wine, the oil, the fine flour, and the sheep. What do you think that points to? 
these items, wine, oil, fine flour, sheep. What could that possibly represent? Well, let's go to the scriptures again. Exodus 29, 38 to 40. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, continually. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour, mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil, and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering. And so in the temple, when it was functioning, there was a daily offering, a daily sacrifice, which involved a lamb, which is sheep, right? The offering of flour, oil, and wine. That's precisely on the list of the merchandise associated with great Babylon. This was the daily offering. What would eventually happen to the daily offering? The offering of the lamb, the flour, the oil, and the wine. Daniel 12, verse 11. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be one 1,290 days. So the Bible gives us a warning about the Antichrist. At first, he will establish a covenant, right? And this covenant will permit and allow the temple services uh, to go on. However, at the midpoint, there's going to be the abomination of desolation. And then the daily sacrifice is going to be taken away because the Antichrist will demand worship for himself, no longer for Yahuwah. And so... That point, the, the list of the wine, the oil, the flour, the sheep, that is pointing to the daily sacrifices. And something interesting, it also mentions wheat and cattle. What could that possibly be? The wheat and the cattle. Let's read Exodus 29, 1 to 2. And this is what you shall do uh, to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull which is cattle, and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. It turns out this is the only time wheat is mentioned as an offering. And it, it, is, to, it is used so that the priests could be hallowed for ministering. Because if you're going to begin temple services, you need to consecrate or set apart the priest who will function in these temple services. And so when you look at all the, the, the different pieces of merchandise, it tells us it's involving the building of the temple and the institution of the temple sacrifices. But the list keeps going, right? Now it mentions horses and chariots. Why on earth would that be included? Because it's telling us who would be leading in this whole movement that begins with the temple rebuilt and the temple services. Horses and chariots. What does that represent? Well, to answer that, let's first go to Solomon. We all know about King Solomon. After all, he was the one who built the temple, right? And so according to scriptures, when te the temple was built and Yahuwah filled the temple with his presence, 
We know what happened to Solomon. He did not remain a wise and faithful king loyal to Yahuwah, right? He fell. He apostatized from Yahuwah. This is what it says in 1 Kings 11, 4 to 5. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to Yahuwah his God as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And if we read other pieces of scripture, we know Solomon did a lot of, a lot of other abominable acts. They built shrines and temples for these false gods whom Yahuwah hated. And so what we can see is that Solomon did not remain faithful. He turned to idolatry and committed abomination against Yahuwah Abba. Now, before he did that, right, what kind of started all of that? What led Solomon to betray Yahuwah? It's because he did not obey the commandment of Yahuwah for kings. You see, long ago, during the days of Moses, Yahuwah gave specific laws concerning the kings, what they were not supposed to do. And this is what it says in the book of Deuteronomy 17, 16 and 17. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For Yahuwah has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And so we have here the three laws that Yahuwah gave to Moses that is to be applied to the kings of Yisrael. Three things. What are they? Do not multiply horses for yourself. What else? Do not multiply wives for yourself. What else? Do not multiply silver and gold for yourself. We know about the wives of Solomon, right? Because when you have a lot of wife, you're basically exalting yourself. And when you have a lot of horses, what are you doing? You're also exalting yourself. When you multiply your silver and gold, it is a way of also exalting your self. And many people today, when they look at this passage, this is what they want. You know, they want to have uh, horses and chariots. They want to have silver and gold. They want to have whatever relationship that they want, right? This is why people engage in adultery. And so this is describing what many people prefer today. But the Bible says no, especially if you're a king, because he doesn't want pride. This, what motivates all of this is pride. And when there's pride, there's always a fall. There's a fall that comes when you are proud. And here, the multiplying of horses, the multiplying of wives, the multiplying of silver and gold, it is what's led Solomon to his demise or to his fall from glory. And so he did not remain loyal and faithful to Yahuwah. You know what, uh, Solomon, you know how he fulfilled or actually didn't uh, reject or how he disobeyed these laws concerning the kings? Look at 1 Kings uh, 10, 14, 25 to 26. The weight of gold that Solomon, that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. I want to pause it for a while. Do you recognize the number? What number do you recognize? 666. Six, six. There are two places in scripture 
where 666 are found. One in Revelation 13, 16, which identifies the Antichrist. And the other one right here. It tells us the influence behind the pride of Solomon is who? Yeah, the same one who influences the Antichrist or the beast. And so this pride that comes from Satan, because we all know he was the original one, the original proud one. That's why he became Satan or the adversary. Because he wanted to be greater than Elohim. He wanted worship for himself. And so Solomon, when he was influenced by the enemy, look at that. He wanted to amass gold for himself. 666 talents ago. 666. Each man brought his present articles of silver and gold, arm, uh, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate year by year. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And so what did Solomon do? He completely rejected the three laws Jehovah gave for kings. He multiplied wives, he multiplied his gold, and he multiplied his horses. Yahuwah says no, but that's what he did, right? This is why when you look at the merchandise, it includes horses and chariots because whoever's going to orchestrate and lead great Babylon is going to be associated with self-exaltation. Chariots and horses represents the one who will lead into the work of exalting himself that people might worship him and is associated with the influence of Satan. And then it mentions the object of ivory. You know what ivory was used in the Holy Bible? Let's read 1 Kings 10. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory. This is why he amassed ivory for the purpose of creating that throne. Made of ivory and overlaid with pure gold. How majestic for the king, right? Ivory, an ivory tower. No, an ivory throne. And so what does this suggest? It suggests to us that this future uh, work of Great Babylon involves the building of a temple, reinstituting the temple services, and there's going to be one who will sit on a throne. That's why there's ivory. He's going to be a king. And what will he do? He will exalt himself with chariots of horses, right? And because he will be in power and exalting himself, what will he do with the people? Let's read. It also mentions bodies and souls of men. So bodies of men, souls of men, they become merchandise. What does that mean? They become slaves. This is why in Revelation 13, 15, and 18, what is the mark of, slave, of slavery? He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should sp uh, both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. 
Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for he's the number of a man. His number is 666. That's the Antichrist. That's the beast. The Bible says when we look at the list of things, the list of items associated with Babylon, it includes the bodies and souls of men because the people that this person who sits on a throne made of ivory, what he is going to do is cause people by force to worship him. There are many who, who uh, wants to worship him willingly. But for those who do not want to worship him willingly, he will force them because he's going to give them a mark, right? The mark on the right hand and on the forehead to cause people to worship him. And so he's going to enslave them. That's what the mark of the beast is. It means ownership. And so their bodies and their souls belong to who now? The beast, the antichrist, the one who sits on the iron, uh, on the ivory uh, throne. And so when you look at this list, isn't it pretty obvious what its meaning is? This list tells us not what great Babylon is going to be selling to make money. I don't think it's going to be this. You're not going to make money selling this. <laughs> the purpose of this list is not to, to tell us what they're going to be selling. The purpose of this list is to identify the great Babylon and the work of fornication that they will be doing, right? Why? When you look at the list, the first items, gold, silver, scarlet, wood, bronze, iron, all of that is used for what? Building what? The temple, right? So you're going to build a temple for God. And then the next list, cinnamon, incense, fragrant oil, and frankincense. What is the purpose of that? To consecrate the furniture in the temple. Because if you want the temple to be functioning, because the temple has a purpose, its purpose is to set, uh, is to do the work of sacrifice, offering of animals. That's the purpose of the temple. And so if you're going to build a temple, you're going, you're going to also need the oil and the incense to set apart the furniture and the individuals who will work as priests and Levites. That's why you need a cinnamon, the incense, the oil, and the frankincense. And once you do that, you need to maintain temple worship with fine oil, uh, with wine and oil, fine flour and sheep. These are the daily sacrifices to maintain the temple system or the sacrificial system. And then, of course, we have the wheat and the cattle. And that represents the, the offering to set apart so that the priest can minister. And so what we have here is the building of the temple, setting up of the sacrifice, the, offer, the sacrificial system, maintaining it, and also having someone take a lead. Because the ivory represents the throne. So there's going to be someone who's going to lead it. But the someone is going to be exalting himself with horses and chariots. And he's going to enslave individuals, giving his mark. This is why the bodies and souls of men becomes his merchandise. They belong to him now. So when you look at the list of items and the merchandise... It only makes sense if it is Jerusalem, does it not? Doesn't make sense anywhere else. It's referring to Jerusalem. The merchandise, this list of merchandise, clearly, very clearly, 
reveals to us the purpose of Great Babylon, rebuilding the temple, setting up the sacrificial system, maintaining the temple services, becoming a, uh, the headquarters of a king sitting on his throne who will exalt himself. And from there, he will use his authority and power to enslave human beings. And so it's pretty obvious this Babylon referred to is Jerusalem in the end times. And so what would happen to great Babylon? Let's keep reading. Revelation, we're almost done. When the mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. So the angel takes a stone and throws it into the sea. Remember what the sea represents? Remember how the beast emerges? The beast ascends out of the sea. What does the sea symbolize? Wickedness of people. That's the beginning of the Antichrist, the wicked people. It's also going to come to an end. The sea is going to be destroyed because the angel will throw the stone into the sea. And that would be the end of Babylon. That would be, it shall not be found anymore. The influence of Babylon would be gone which paves the way for the Jerusalem for the millennial kingdom. It will now be redeemed by the kinsman redeemer. Jerusalem now can be used officially by the king for his official kingdom during the millennial reign. And once this happens, what does the Bible say about Babylon? Let's read. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints. And of all who were slain on the earth. And so the Bible says that when Babylon is judged. It's going to be a desolate city. No more shining, no more laughter, no more joy. It will be a desolate city. And the Bible says that this city is responsible for the blood of prophets. This is why it corroborates our thesis that great Babylon is Jerusalem. Because it says in verse 24, in her, in great Babylon, was found the blood of prophets and saints, and all who were slain on the earth. I mean, who, according to our King Yahushua, is responsible for the blood of prophets and the saints of the earth, those who were slain? Matthew 23, 37, the one speaking here is our King Yahushua. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And so our King Yahushua identifies Jerusalem as the city, as a woman. Jerusalem as the one who kills the prophets. This is why we don't need to guess about who, what the great city is. Yahushua identifies a great city. What is that city responsible for the death of the prophets? Yahushua says, Jerusalem. Not only does Yahushua identify Jerusalem as the city that stones those who were sent to her and kills the prophets, 
even before 37, 38, when you read the context, he expands on it. Let's read 34 to 35. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes. Some of them you kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And on you, and on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias and of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And so our King Yahusha himself is holding Jerusalem responsible for the blood, even going way back to the days of Abel. To Abel, from Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, to all those who were sent. So that on you, Yahushua says, may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. I mean, you don't have to do any guesswork. It's pretty obvious by now. When you put Revelation 17 and 18 together, it's pretty obvious that the great Babylon is Jerusalem in the end times. Because Yahushua accuses Jerusalem of killing the prophets, murder. Yahuwah accuses Jerusalem of Adultery and fornication and infidelity. So idolatry, murder, it's found in Jerusalem. And so in the end times, the Bible says she will be judged, right? And why is great Babylon able to convince so many people, the whole world, to join her agenda? The Bible says in Revelation 18, what we read, for by your sorcery, all the nations were deceived. It's interesting that there's a use here of the word sorcery. And we know sorcery is like black magic, the occult, new age, new age thinking, humanism, right? And so alternatives to Yahushua. That's what really sorcery is. Alternative options other than placing your hope and trust in Yahuwah and Yahushua. And when you look at the word sorcery, something interesting comes up because the Greek word used is pharmakeia. Now, when you think of pharmakeia, what comes to mind? Pharmaceuticals, pharmacy. What is pharmacy? Medication. And there are some people who say, you know, you, this is proof that Yahuwah was against medication. No, that's not what this is about. Because when you look at pharmakeia, it represents, yeah, the user administer, administering of drugs, poisoning, sorcery often found in connection with idolatry, a metaphor for deceptions and seductions of idolatry. Remember at this time, what is in Great Babylon? The demons, the foul spirits, the birds, Satan himself, right? And so they have this influence and they will deceive. And part of their work of deception is causing people to think in certain warped ways. Interestingly enough, when a person uses drugs, what happens to his or her thinking? It becomes warped, right? And so people begin to see things that are not. They are unable to discern reality from fiction, right? They're going to be hallucinating delusional it's the effects of drugs so it it's very very plausible that the influence of the devil can tap into pharmaceuticals and the use of substances 
so that the abuse of these substances will cause people to think in such a way that it will remove the influence of the word of Elohim. And truth be told, nowadays, all over the world, doesn't matter what country you belong to, there's a big drug problem, right? There's a big, a big drug problem. But, you know, when you think of drugs, you know what the most potent, the most heinous, uh, the most dangerous and powerful drug is? What do you think it is? Ask that question. What do you think is the most dangerous drug on earth? Is it heroin, PCP? What is it? What do you think it is? Give me a guess. What could be the most dangerous drug? In my humble opinion, I think the most dangerous drug can be spelled in three letters. S-I-N. Right? Yeah, sin. Sin is addictive. And once you're on sin, it'll kill you. <laughs> Not only your physical body, but also your soul. Right? This is why we need to be aware of sin. And so the whole purpose of Revelation 18, the whites there, is to tell us sin is the reason for the fall of Babylon. And sin is also the reason why it rose in the first place. Right? Because when it comes to sin, it is associated with pride rising. But when you rise because of pride, you fall. And sin is responsible. This is why the most addictive, the most dangerous drug that we need to be aware of today, what makes it even more sinister is people are not even thinking of sin as a drug. That's why they say it's okay to sin. They get addicted to it. Look at how sin can be considered a drug in James 1, 14, 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so it begins with a desire. You're enticed. Isn't that how you begin to take drugs? You're enticed. You take the drug, and then pretty soon the addiction grows. You cannot live without it. It's the same thing with sin. When it's full grown, you cannot live without sin. And sin is going to bring death. This is why people can be addicted to sin. And sin will destroy their lives. And what makes sin uh, very potent as a drug. Look at Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another daily. While it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin is deceitful what do you mean it warps your thinking just like physical drugs do when you, people are into substances like a person is intoxicated with alcohol their their thinking is deceptive what they see is not really what they see what they think could be is filled with faulty information and so they're deceived by it sin does the same thing sin damages the way we think about reality. Sin warps our mind. This is why sin is a powerful tour of sorcery. This is why in Revelation 18, it mentions because of your sorcery, you deceive the whole world. And then Apostle John connects that with Isaiah. Remember the passage we read earlier? Take a look at what it says again, Isaiah 47, 8 down to 10. Therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there's no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come 
to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in the fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments. And so sorcery, enchantments, you know, if there's two things, I mean, one thing that can serve as a potent enchantment and sor work of sorcery, it is sin. It's like a drug that changes your mind because of sin. Look what happens. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. You know, when a person is caught in sin, when a person commits sin and he, he does not want to repent, pretty soon he makes up excuses for his sin to the point that he says, oh, there's no such thing as God anymore, right? You don't want to listen to that anymore. You just pretend, oh, God doesn't exist. And so you say to yourself, oh, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there's no one else besides me. That's the deceitfulness of sin. It makes people reject God and make themselves God. That's the sorcery of sin. And that's what will convince many people today to follow the agenda led by the Antichrist, promoted by, the, by, the, by great Babylon. And for us, members of the Assembly of Yahushua, we know that there's only one who can save us from the power of sin, our King Yahushua. And so in our final passage today, what should we do? How should we live our life? What should we believe in and hold on to? In the book of John 34, Yahushua answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You see, our true Mashiach is very different from the anti-Mashiach. The anti-Mashiach who is going to come on his throne of ivory, he will give a mark. He will cause people to worship him by force. And he will enslave them. But our king, our Mashiach is different. Why? Because of the word Mashiach. What does Mashiach mean again? Anointed one. Because he is the one chosen by Yahuwah to die on the cross by means of his shed blood. We will be redeemed. And our sins are forgiven. This is why Yahushua says, and I want you to keep this in mind. Brothers and sisters, our king Yahushua says, and we need to believe him. Yahushua says, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And our freedom is complete. You notice when one is freed by Yahushua, you notice what our king Yahushua says? When you are redeemed, if you believe in the son, and your sins have been, uh, have been taken away from you. And you're free from sin. It also removes the consequence of sin. We no longer become the slaves of sin. Instead, and this is the beautiful part, it makes us sons. It makes us daughters. You see, when we accept the redemptive work of King Yahushua, we are added to the household of Abba. This is why Yahushua is considered our elder brother, right? The, the one that heads the household. He is the head. And we belong to the same family as Elohim. 
And Yahusha says, if I say you're free, you are free indeed. And so we are free. We are free from the payment of sin. We're going to re receive salvation as the sons and daughters of our loving Father. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, most holy Yahuwah Allahim, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for your grace, love, and mercy. Help us to be aware of sin. Help us to overcome them in our life, that we will not be subject to them. Rather, we will be subject to your will, to your ways. Abba, help us to overcome our flesh. Teach us, please, to live according to the Spirit. May you help us to feed the Spirit, that we will be influenced by it in living out our life. Thank you for your message. Help us to heed it. Help us to proclaim it. Yahushua, our Mashiach, thank you for dying for our sins. We believe in the gospel, and so we will proclaim your name, Yahushua. We will proclaim your work. You died for our sins, that we can belong to you, that we can become sons and daughters of Elohim and belong to your household. Please help us to share this message with as many people as possible and help us to be faithful and loyal to you, our true king. Father, we believe that you have listened to our prayers. You have blessed your people throughout the world. We ask everything, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.